1: This is the John Fuglesang podcast. This is Sirius XM channel 127. Welcome to Progress After Dark. Good evening to everybody out there on the West Coast driving home in your vehicles. Hello to everybody else in the middle and the East Coast. Welcome to Tell Me Everything, bringing good trouble to the right wing bubble. I'm John Fuglesang here in Manhattan, New York City, Thea is producing us from Brooklyn. Chris, our executive producer, is being executive and production-like down in South Carolina. And for the next couple hours, we're going to be with you right here on channel 127 at 866-997-4748. We would love to hear from you. Let's talk, if we can, for a few minutes about the best people in the world. Nurses. There are staffing shortages plaguing every part of the healthcare care system, and nurses say some hospitals have turned to controversial methods to stretch their existing personnel from mandating on-call shifts to increasing the number of days nurses must work. According to reports filed with the Department of Public Health, several hospitals have turned to mandatory overtime, which requires nurses to stay beyond their scheduled shift. The practice is prohibited under state law, except in cases of emergency. Now, the state in this case is Massachusetts, and the words I have been reading are shared by our next guest, Jessica Bartlett, medical reporter for the Boston Globe, in a devastating new piece, Massachusetts hospitals turn to controversial labor practices to stretch beleaguered staff. A recent survey by the Massachusetts Nurses Association found that nearly a fifth of nurses in Massachusetts plan to leave the field in two years or less. So many nurses have discovered They'll tell you if you don't kill yourself to provide extra care, sometimes nobody else will. How does society meet the need without causing burnout to the nurses on our front lines? It is a great pleasure to welcome Jessica Bartlett to SiriusXM. Hello.
0: Hi. Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you. Thank you for writing this piece. My mom was an RN and I heard these same stories decades ago. I mean, it, it, it's not legal, is it? I mean, there is a law, but as you quote in the piece, the law has no teeth. They can just make these nurses work well past the legal number of hours.
0: Yeah, so there's been a law since 2013 prohibiting the use of um, what's called mandatory overtime, basically when a, a nurse is on their scheduled shift and then the hospital says, well, you uh, you can't leave. We need you to stay another two, four, um, whatever hours beyond the shift they're currently on. And so whether it's actually illegal in this moment, it really depends on who you ask. Um, if you ask the hospitals, they will tell you Yes, it's legal. There's an ongoing public health emergency, um, at least until May. This is permitted under law uh, as an emergency declared by the governor. And so we're we're doing this in accordance with the law. Um, But the nurses union will tell you no, that the law explicitly says you cannot uh, use this tool to make up for routine staffing outages, whether it's um, a sick time or um, someone out for maternity leave. Um, And in the description um, of the public records uh, that I received from the state, uh, some of them say, you know, hospital emergency because the staff was out sick. So whether hospitals are abusing the letter of the law or just the spirit of the law is unclear. But what's certainly clear is that this has been used hundreds of times in the last several months, and it's really putting pressure on the frontline staff.
1: I mean, you know, it's always a very human temptation to look for the bad guy here, but you do take pains in your article to talk about how hospitals have done their best to try to manage a staffing crisis. They across the state have spent considerably to bring in outside staff to deal with the gaps. You mentioned that in the fiscal year that ended in September, hospitals collectively spent over a billion and a half on temporary clinical staff and 77% of that we're temporary nurses. But I mean, if throwing money at it won't help, what is causing these shortages?
0: I mean, it's a lot of different things. Part of it has to do with the burnout. Nurses uh, left the field in huge numbers over the last several years, um, whether it was the impact of COVID, um, whether it was impact on childcare, people who just needed to stay home because they couldn't, uh, daycares closed, they didn't have anywhere else to send their children. And um, mm-hmm. Or just they they retired early. They didn't want to do this kind of um, laborious, intensive work in a space that for many months felt unsafe. And so um, the Hospital Association has estimated that there's uh, approximately 19,000 unfilled positions in hospitals right now. (laughs) Uh, nurses make up a subset of that but that just gives you a sense of the scale and the scope of what we're talking about hospitals aren't turning to these measures for fun they are doing it because there is a staffing crisis and they will tell you there is no bigger crisis that we're focused on every conversation we have is about workforce all of our efforts are on recruitment retention Um, they're collaborating with colleges to try to make this work they are spending handsomely as you mentioned to bring in outside staff Um, but those measures are not enough. And while this might be a a shorter term solution as those retention and and recruitment efforts kind of ramp up, um, the longer term effects, hospital uh, nurses are saying, is that it will encourage more of them to leave, and it will exacerbate the problem. So we're in this kind of chicken or egg scenario of, of how do you solve for the patients who need care right now? They will not stop showing up without further stressing the workforce issue that's already at this crisis level.
1: What has been the role of uh, travelers, of traveling nurses, um, in terms of uh, beginning to address this crisis?
0: It's interesting. So the traveling nurses have um, really created a a solution in the short term, especially in the early days of the pandemic. The state needed more workers. There were um, huge shifts in where patients were going as they came to the hospital with COVID. And so travelers were an essential tool the state did some things around travelers. Before you weren't allowed to um, work as a traveler if you lived, I think it was in like a hundred miles of your of your hospital. They got away. They they uh, eliminated that requirement. And so, um, what that has meant now is that nurses will work alongside a nurse who makes double what they make, and they'll say, "Why am I doing this work for half? I can just exactly. become." a traveler, come to my exact same hospital, do the exact same work, get paid more for it. Or, you know, I can go to Florida when it's cold and um, do some traveling nurse work there, come back home. So the lifestyle of traveling nurses has been really attractive and has has grown in um, earning potential. And so while it has been this essential tool and solution, it has also kind of exacerbated the problem because it's drawn workers away from the full-time workforce into right. this kind of temporary expensive labor pool.
1: Yeah. My mother worked as both in her career. It's, it's, it's completely true. It, it does seem though that, um, is it more a, a salary shortage that's driving the staffing shortage? I mean, we talk all the time about how nurses and teachers deserve to be paid substantially more than they are. Is it a case that the field itself is not drawing enough applicants because the, the salaries aren't where they deserve to be?
0: Well, interestingly, the state has looked at staffing within nursing of the last several years, and there are more nurses now than there were then. And so there's this big debate of where are the nurses working? Are they just not working in hospitals? They're working in other avenues of nursing, like home health care, or are they only working part time because now the salaries have raised to a point where they don't have to work as many hours to make the same salary? Um the the salaries have definitely raised uh but there are still some nurses that will tell you that they're not high enough given the demands the workload um so again it's this it's this squishy question that uh depends on who you ask for an answer um but hospitals are also hard pressed to raise the salaries even more given the constraints they have on spending i mean healthcare is hugely expensive nationally but also specifically in massachusetts The state has tried to clamp down on that spending growth. And so if you raise your salaries to a degree, which is already the biggest expenditure for hospitals, that money has to come from somewhere else.
1: In the course of your reporting, I know you talk to a lot of nurses. What kind of conditions are we talking about? 12-hour shifts? I mean, it's already so often a thankless job, but what were some of the personal details that surprised you?
0: I think the one that That really stood out to me the most was the one where I started the piece where this nurse, you know, she was regularly working. So she worked like three 12-hour shifts normally a week. And those were regularly being stretched to 16-hour shifts. And she has four kids at home. She wasn't able to see them. She was saying when she was home, she was so exhausted that she was cranky and irritable. Even when she wasn't about at work, she was thinking about work, thinking, you know, are they going to have enough staff when I'm not there? When she was at work, she was worried she wasn't going to be able to leave. And in recognition of the amount of time she had been, what they call mandated, she had become uh, mandated to stay past her shift, some of her colleagues handed her a trophy, literally in the shape of a toilet, to kind of represent the crappy job that she had had working this immense amount of hours beyond what was routine for her. And so it, it just goes to show you that it's not just people who, you know, they, it's not like nurses don't want to work hard. It's not that they are, you know, frustrated by a moment in time. The demands being placed on them become their lives, it That's takes it. over everything else. And I think it is unreasonable to expect someone to sacrifice their entire life for a job. And at a certain point, the nurses say, enough. And this particular nurse decided to go part time because she was taking breaks in her shift to cry in rooms because she was so exhausted.
1: We're going to take a very quick break. We'll be right back. This is progress. and welcome back uh jessica bartlett you say in the piece according to state guidelines hospitals should only impose mandatory overtime after they've made a good faith effort to find voluntary coverage including seeking per diem and off-duty nurses temporary labor or nurses from other units in the hospital and that's all well and good but anyone who's worked in the field knows if you refuse the mandatory ot and you just leave because your time is up, there's a chance you could be reported to the board of Nursing for patient abandonment, which could even result in losing your nursing license. So it's like the nurses can get punished if they leave when they're supposed to leave, but there really is no penalty for the facilities that are consistently understaffed,
0: yeah, I mean, that's uh, the biggest problem with this law is that the nurses say it has no teeth. So even if uh, they are, even if they find that that hospitals are violating, not just the spirit, but the the tenant of the law, there's no consequence. The only thing hospitals have to do is report that they're um, mandating nurses to stay, but there's no penalty, there's no financial um, consequence for them doing this. And, and so that's one of the things nurses say needs to change, that if we're going to really protect our workforce, if we're going to stand up for them, um, because we recognize collectively how essential they are, because we don't have enough of them now, um, that we do need to hold hospitals accountable um, if they are violating the mm. the letter of the law.
1: So is it is it a case that the hospitals have been, you know, with the staffing shortages or have been sort of using COVID-19 as a crutch? It seems your former governor, Charlie Baker, declared a state of emergency, public health emergency three years ago last month. The state of emergency ended two years ago, but it seems like they're still hobbling along um, using the COVID temporary emergency as license to keep on with these practices.
0: Yeah, so the um, the state of emergency has ended, but the public health emergency has not. And so uh, hospitals say that under that designation, this is still allowed because it's still a government declared emergency. Um, but they also say, uh, well, we had a hospital emergency in the in the uh, documents they file with the state. They have to say, you know, is this a government designated emergency that required you to do this? Is it a hospital emergency, an internal hospital emergency? And a lot of them said, oh, it's an internal hospital emergency, which typically means, um, you know, the the law gives examples like flooding or some like catastrophic casual mass casualty event. Um, but hospitals will say, oh, it's a hospital emergency. And then they'll go on to say, because a staff member was out sick. So there's a disconnect here of what constitutes a hospital emergency, if that really is um, considered a hospital emergency in that case. Um, and the hospitals too, in that letter, will they will specify the steps they took to try to avoid this. They are offering bonuses. They are looking for per diem shifts, but a beleaguered workforce is so exhausted at many of these places that they don't That's even it. want the extra shifts. They don't want the, the extra overtime. They're so tired, they just wanna go home. And so even those extra steps hospitals are taking are not working um and for cape cod hospital too they mentioned you know over the summer they had a number of mandatory overtime shifts they said we could not hire temporary staff the housing rates are too high on the cape in the summertime nurse temporary nurses weren't applying for the jobs that we had we literally could not find them and so we had to mandate our own staff um so i recognize that this is this is hard on a number of different levels we are, barreling toward a place where this is getting worse. And that I think is the, the paramount concern.
1: Yeah, it really seems like it's a, it's a combination of both a symptom of our decaying healthcare system that doesn't really take adequate care of Americans while at the same time, a symptom of the American penchant for disregarding organized labor. And I'm curious if in your research, if you've heard any potential solutions that have been compelling to you, I mean, could there be like systems where hospitals partner with nursing schools? So hospital RNs can teach clinical students without having to take a pay cut. Could there be a, a, a scenario where salaries are just increased? I, i It just seems like people are still getting sick, the population's aging, and there are no real solutions for any more than the immediate short term for this
0: yeah i think there are some really innovative ideas thrown out there though i don't know if they've progressed to the point of of action um the governor before the pandemic and then again during the pandemic this is uh previous governor charlie baker Mm -hmm. had suggested we need to increase the amount we spend on primary care and mental health care to avoid people coming to the hospital to avoid this volume shift that requires and and mandates um, nurses to stay overtime and and to ameliorate some of the staffing problems. So that's like one solution. Um, the hospital association also had this idea of like an AmeriCorps for uh, hospital labor, like right. we, we do in other industries. You know, maybe we provide the training, um, we pay for the education, and then people sign up for a five-year contract to work for a hospital. Uh, so there are, there are definitely solutions out there that are being discussed, but we haven't yet gotten to the point where um, things are being put in action globally, though individual systems are working with colleges, trying to recruit, trying to bring in new labor. Um, but also that that adds a stress too. new labor is not as equipped to handle the day to day as an That's experienced right. nurse who just left. So it, it's That's not right. a one for one. You bring in a new nurse and for the old nurse that leaves. There's still a, a, a learning curve, a, a and a stress that's still put on your existing workforce to now train your new workforce that's coming in.
1: You know, I can tell your admiration for the nurses coming through in your journalism. And it's amazing, despite all of these conditions and all this hardship and all this, just frankly, insulting treatment of such essential workers. So many of these nurses still feel called to this service, to this profession. And that's the most moving thing about it. It's something I've witnessed my whole life growing up around nurses, that in spite of conditions and poor salary and unfair conditions, they will keep showing up.
0: Yeah, I. it's amazing to me the amount of passion they have for what they do, um, the, the reasons they stay. I mean, even if as it suffers their home life, they still stay. They still show up every shift. They still keep coming to work even as burnout continues and exacerbates, they they don't give up on their jobs and they, they don't lose the passion for it. They are exhausted, but they're still passionate. Um, I think that's what calls them to the career to begin with, that they wouldn't be in this field if it weren't for that passion. Um, it's, they just yeah. wanna make sure that it's not being abused in service of of a profession.
1: It's a great piece, and um, I'm really happy to talk to you about it as infuriated as it makes me feel. While I have you, though, I'd I'd love to ask if you had any thoughts about what we've been witnessing in Texas and how uh, this judge has just been deciding that the FDA was wrong 20 plus years ago, and we're witnessing a movement made up of non-medical professionals to take mifepristone away from American women in all 50 states.
0: Yeah, it is. Fascinating to me, um, sitting in Massachusetts, covering Massachusetts healthcare, we have not just this ruling, but also another one out of Texas that impacted um, the Affordable Care Act, aka Obamacare. Uh, like it's it's fascinating how frequently of late that judges in Texas are affecting healthcare in Massachusetts. Um, but in regards to. This decision on mifepristone, um, one of the two pills in in a typical uh, medical abortion regimen, it is. Experts are telling me that some of the things the judge said in his ruling in Texas are just outright not medically true. Um, You know, we're we're talking about pressures on hospitals and healthcare, right? The volume that keeps coming, the nurses that are beleaguered. But in this decision, the the Texas judge says, well, um, medical abortions create more pressure on hospital systems. It sends more people to the emergency room. Yeah. Um, enormous pressure and stress, he says. And that's just not true, medical experts tell me. These are medical experts, by the way, who are unaffiliated with political parties. These are not like pro-choice or pro-life groups. These are just OBGYNs working in Massachusetts so facilities. And they would tell you um, that medical abortion is quite safe that uh, the major risk of uh, complication from an abortion is 0.23% compared to uh, delivering a baby. uh, That's 1.4% of women experience severe complications. So like births actually put more pressure on a health system than medical abortions. So it is complicated and fascinating to look at how local providers are trying to shift for things that they just don't feel have a basis in science or medicine.
1: Yeah, just incredible. And you know, of course, Mifepristone continues to be much safer for a woman's health than childbirth. Uh, Jessica Bartlett, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to read her piece in the Boston Globe, it's called Massachusetts hospitals turn to controversial labor practices to stretch beleaguered staff. What is the best way for our listeners to follow you and keep up with your reporting?
0: Um, They can uh, go on bostonglobe.com. My articles are always posted there and um, they can search Jessica Bartlett, Boston Globe. And I have a a page on the Boston Globe where all my articles appear so they can follow me there
1: as well. I love your work. Thank you for what you do. And thank you for joining us on SiriusXM.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: We'll be right back.
2: So listen to the Michael Steele Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts on, because you know I love it when you
1: do. I am so happy to welcome Maz Jabani back to the show. Now, Maz is one of the best stand ups working in this country right now. Uh, he is incredibly funny, incredibly accessible. I've seen this man play to every kind of room, and he always kills. You may have seen him before on Grey's Anatomy, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Shameless, uh, Sidney Pollack's movie, The Interpreter, and of course, his many terrific comedy specials, including Netflix's Immigrant in 2017 and Peacock's Pandemic Warrior from 2021. Maz Jobrani does not sit around waiting to make new material. He already has a new special. It's Dynamite. I've seen it. I love it. It's called The Birds of the Bees, and it's on YouTube. It's his seventh special, and it is hilarious. He is one of the most gifted performers we have, and it's always a pleasure to welcome Maz Jobrani back to SiriusXM
2: wow john i love you man that was that made me feel good that made me feel like uh i think that's going to keep me going for another week of not doubting my career
1: choices (laughs) stop it now you know you but, but your whole your whole special is all about your career choices this this film begins with you in front of the store talking about how you first went by when you were what 13 and you were obsessed with eddie murphy
2: Yeah. So, uh, you know, I grew up in Northern California. My family moved from Iran to America when I was six years old and then grew up in Northern California. And then at some point um, I found Eddie Murphy. I found comedy and I just wanted to be that. And coming from an immigrant background, of course, uh, my parents said, you know, you're crazy. You got to be a lawyer, doctor, something. you know, do something reputable. We have a name in the community. Don't ruin our name uh by by basically in their minds becoming a drug dealer that's what being in the (laughs) entertainment would be uh so i um i was 13 years old and we came down to la for a quick visit and back then sunset strip was kind of a little seedy i guess uh i just remember staying at a hotel that's now very nice that's across the street from the comedy store not the mondrian but just down a little bit and back then again i was 13 i remember um, it was, it, I think there was like prostitutes. I don't, I just remember being a young kid and going like, what is going on? And there was like this lady in her bikini. It was like straight out of like, um, uh, the, the scene in, um, Big Lebowski where she's like suntanning out in the pool and we're looking we're like, what, what is that? And, and, and then we were going by the club and they go and, you know, anyone who's seen the comic store in LA, it's this black building with a bunch of names on it. And so i just remember seeing this black building and they were like yeah that's a comedy store And eddie murphy's in there and i go oh my god let's just go and they go no it's 21 and older um and i tell the story in the special very quickly at the beginning how years later when i become a regular at the comedy store and they put your names on the walls eddie murphy's name is uh, on the wall right in front of the main room and then if you look up a little further my name's A little right there right above his and uh and so it was pretty amazing to be you know it's just it's almost like you're a dream come true and um and so yeah so that's one of the reasons yeah it is a dream come true and and that's why i I really wanted to do it at the comedy store because we always call it a special but what's special about it well this is what's special about this place is that's where i got my start that's where mitzi shore started putting me on stage in my mid-20s when i first started becoming a comedian and uh, and it's just a legendary place i mean you were you were i saw you there
1: recently you know it's it's just this yeah. place with such a history you know it's so much history and i can tell it really meant a lot to you to film it in the main room there that room just has a lot for you and it it really is a a personal personal show and i think that's what makes your material um so political to me because you don't really do a lot of overtly political stuff although you do and i want to get to that but by just coming out there and by showing other Americans what an Iranian American is really like, I mean, and, and Iranian Americans have to deal with this in the comedy world all the time. But you actually come out there and you break down barriers just by being a funny dad.
2: Yeah, I you know, it's interesting you say that we were when I first um, the Mitzi actually put me and uh, Ahmed Ahmed, Aaron Cater and Dino Bidali joined us later when we filmed the special. But yeah. she put us together on a tour uh, back in the day, she called it the Arabian nights. And then that evolved into the axis of evil Yeah, and great. similar. Yeah. And that was like the first, that was the first special I was a part of in 2007. It came out on comedy central and similar to what you're just saying. A lot of people ask me, they go, well, do you think your comedy changes hearts and minds? I say, listen, it's not just my comedy, but rather when you film a special and you put it out and people get to see people that look like me in an audience laughing, And that's part of the importance of it. Now, you know, my audience, thank God is diverse, but there are a lot of people from the Middle Eastern background who come to the shows. And so, especially in that first special, you know, a lot of cutaways into the audience and you would see these people that are, you know, Persian or Arab laughing. And I remember reading people's comments about that special. And one person actually had written on some comment board. He said, I never knew these people laughed. (laughs) <laughs> and, and if you reflect upon it, like you're saying, it's political, but it's true. It's like we had only been shown laughing in an evil way in American film or television. And there we were laughing actually at jokes. So, um, yeah, I think just by doing it, um, I think that I'm making a statement. And, um, and the good news, though, John, as you know, is I've seen the diversity rise so much in the past. I mean, I've been doing this for 25 years. When I first started, there was a handful of us from these backgrounds. And now there's a ton and it's so nice to see that. And that's what I think the world
1: should be. I agree completely. I'm I'm curious about the choice to put this special up on YouTube. Um, Why was that the platform that you wanted this special to be seen on?
2: You know, I wish just having put on YouTube right now, I wish I would have put more specials on YouTube and I'll tell you why. I've now had a chance to have specials pretty much everywhere. I've had it on Showtime, on Netflix, Comedy Central, and now YouTube. And it's great to be on other networks, but you don't get any interaction from any of the, I mean, once in a while you get people hitting you up going, oh, I saw your special, they hit you on Twitter, they might hit you on Instagram or something. But with right. YouTube, it's all right there. Like when I want to go to the well, I go to the well. Like every couple of days I'll go who am I kidding? Every day I'll go to my, (laughs) I'll go to the, I'll go to the YouTube, my YouTube page where it's running and I'll look at the newest comments and I'll either heart them or I'll reply to them or I'll, I'm just kind of doing my own. It's like almost my own real time information coming in. You know, someone writes, oh, I just discovered you because YouTube pushed it. Oh, I (laughs) saw you in such and such interview. Oh, you stink. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, can't, can't please everybody. I actually told my daughter who, she's 12 years old and and she's, you know, she likes YouTube, so she'll get on there and stuff. And she she said, some guy's really going nuts on you. Cause I do jokes about, you know, there's even though there's a lot of family jokes or some political jokes, there's still jokes of coming out of COVID and all that stuff. And as both you and I know, that's just political. You know, no matter what you say, if you say you got the shot, someone's gonna get upset. Someone's gonna be happy. So some guy was upset that I talked about getting you know my my COVID shot and, and he kept <laughs> commenting yeah and my daughter goes some guy's going crazy on there and I go you know what you know what's good good about that I said listen once you start getting hater comments that means more people are seeing you than just that's your right. fan base I go that's a good
1: thing that's oh, that that's what I'm counting on Moz but I'm glad <laughs> you mentioned COVID because I loved your last special which was all about the pandemic but you know it's it's amazing how you'll take the most awful parts of our modern era and make them so hilarious and you go through this quite a bit in the special like i i didn't have scapegoating asians on my 2020s bingo card but suddenly that's the hot (laughs) oppressed minority all of a sudden and it just seems like it seems like the challenge that you always rise to meet is no matter how crazy the world gets rather than getting angry and political you get funny and political you get aware and political and your stuff here about vaccines is hilarious because you, you really met a guy who thinks they put nanobots into the shot, right? Yeah.
2: I mean, listen, we all met that guy. I mean, how many times, you know, it's so funny. Um, I, I uh, just remember the moment where we had all been on lockdown and in my mind, and especially as a touring comedian, I was dying to get back into the, you know, normal world and tour again. I just remember when the vaccines came out, I was like, all right, good, we're all gonna do this and we're all gonna get out of this together, right? And then quickly it was like, no. And then I just, I went on, <laughs> just to show you like how, I honestly didn't realize it was gonna be this controversial. I, I was doing these things during the, um, during the lockdown, I would call them closet rants. I'd go into my closet and I just start like doing some rant. And the part of the joke was that since we're on lockdown, my whole family is home, my wife, my kids, everyone's home, and they've taken over my house. And I, and I would say, I I would say like in the closet, I'd say, guys, I had to come here. This is the only place I can get privacy. And it used to be (laughs) when I'd go to the living room, I'd have a wife and kids now go in the living room. It looks like an internet startup company. There's a different person in every corner on a computer. And, uh, so one of the rants I did, I go, I go, just get your stupid vaccine. Like, stop with this, all this, you know, chip and all that. And I was like, who do you think you are that they're going to put a chip in you? Like, why would they like? first of all they know where you are your phone and secondly just get the vaccine and i put it out there and this video like went viral and uh, you know clearly a lot of people were on board but there was a lot of people hitting me back and it was an interesting time john because it wasn't just the guys the conspiracy theorists saying oh they're going to put a chip in you it was also like some yoga folks there was some other folks and they and they all had their own theories as to why they didn't want to get the vaccine and i try to respect everybody's opinion in that but in the back and forth ultimately i would always land on like listen man because because like there was somebody who was a yoga instructor who hit me up and was saying you know this isn't nice for you to say this and i was like well just as much as you want me to respect your opinion you should expect my opinion like i think i'm going to listen to the medical experts on this one you know yeah um <laughs> So, yeah, but I and, love and when the, the far left and
1: the far right meet. I love when the far left and far right meet way out there. Right.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It was the weirdest thing. And and and, and it, it's, it's interesting because things that I thought should not be political became political. I actually did a show one time. It was a corporate yeah. event. And they told me that the uh, that the buyers were all like deep Texas and i don't know why they chose me to be the corporate performer like i was because every time i get a corporate event i go who are the buyers like why did mm-hmm. i end up on their radar <laughs> and then I, I i ask, i go i go who are these people they go there's a bunch of good old boys from texas i go what <laughs> and then it was i had to go through my act and go okay don't do the joke about the mask and how we yeah. politicize the mask don't do the joke about the vaccine don't do the joke about the things that i thought would be just you know normal, you got to be careful, I guess, sometimes.
1: Well, yeah, I never thought, you know, masks can stop the spread of disease would suddenly be a controversial statement. But here we are. And, and it always has occurred to me that that, you know, you're someone who believes that laughter is essential for mental health. You've talked about it in the past. And it seems like your show is such a feel good, non divisive experience. I'm curious, how have your views evolved? on laughter beyond just being recreation, but actually being good for our sanity.
2: Absolutely. You know, I was on a panel with DL Hughley one time and I always quote him. He said, uh, comedy is like giving people their medicine, but an orange juice. And I try as much as I can. I mean, again, in this day and age, clearly there's a lot to, um, rant about and get upset about. So especially if I, you know, there's my stand-up persona, which is me on stage with a smile delivering something and quite often making fun of something that I feel is really stupid and quite often not realizing it's it's gonna offend somebody. But, but I'm doing it with a smile and if they really are gonna get offended, I go, all right, you know what, I can't help you. Like for example, I always say the beauty of America as an Iranian American and seeing the lack of freedoms that the people have in Iran, where they cannot um, talk about their leadership in Iran and get away with it um, as freely as, as we can and we should be able to in America. So I said, we should embrace that in America. And that's why we have a correspondence dinner. That's why every night on television, uh, the late night shows make fun of the presidents. And so when we go into the Trump era and I'm doing Trump jokes, in my mind, I go, we're all on board, right? We can make fun of Obama. We can make fun of Trump. We can make fun of Biden. We can make fun of Hillary. We're on board, right? And I quickly realized they're not on board. And it's really interesting <laughs> to me because there was times like I had this one time that I actually caught on tape of this lady. She was with me till like the 50th minute before I got my, to my Trump jokes. Once I got to the Trump jokes, she loses her mind. She's like, I'm oh, yeah. offended as a woman. And, and, I, and I just want to go, listen, lady, the point of this show is to laugh. We should be able to laugh at our leaders. We should be able to laugh at ourselves because it really is therapeutic. It really does, I think you know physically and mentally it's it brings you it's, it's cathartic you know even as a comedian being on stage i feel better whenever i've done
1: my show i feel like it's
2: kind of yeah. like a yoga of sorts i'm like ah that was fun you know so
1: always um, always you know. I I learned after 9-11, um, if I was going to tell any Bush jokes, I had to make sure I had some Clinton jokes and some Gore jokes first, so our conservative brothers and sisters wouldn't feel too singled out. I mean, it's just a matter of taking care of your audience, and you play to the house you're in, so yeah, you, you, you have to. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely,
2: and it's interesting, because sometimes, I'll even, even when I do that, they still get upset. And I and then I just go, I don't know. I I go, well, I guess laughter therapy is not deep enough for you. You really need to go to serious therapy because I don't know what else to tell you. If you're that offended about me joking about someone who's not your, it's not like I'm making fun of your grandmother. I'm making fun of some politician. It, if we objectively step back and looked at it, step back and looked at it, all of them, Republican, Democrat, they're all politicians. So yeah. as, as lay people, Historically, we've made fun of politicians because historically politicians end up either being uh, hypocritical or 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 saying things that that they lie about or whatever. And it's kind of like so now you're going to be offended at some you don't even know the guy, but you're going to be offended. So I don't know.
1: I don't know. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. Maz, you tape this special a couple of months before the murder of Masa Amini in Iran. And, you know, it seems that every 10 years or so, uh, we now get to be inspired by young people in Iran standing up against a fundamentalist theocratic regime. And I, I keep waiting For the spirit to catch in America, I keep waiting for these people who've been socialized to discriminate against Iran. I get it. You know, we 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 tend to not go after the civilian leaders. We just hate people in groups. We were raised with that in America after the hostage crisis. And it's really boring and lame and tacky. But I've been so inspired by what we've seen. I keep waiting for more Americans to realize, like, we're witnessing something really spiritual and amazing and positive in Iran right now. And it's it's still going on. I was a little sorry that you didn't get to touch on that in the new special, because I know this struggle means a lot to you.
2: Yeah, I actually ended up taping the special just a couple of weeks before Massa Amini was killed in the streets yeah. of Iran because her hair was a little out of her hijab. I mean, it's talk about hypocrisy and talk about um, theocracy and totalitarianism and all those words yeah i i definitely would have wanted to talk about it in releasing it and and it you're you're absolutely right it was i was a little upset that i wasn't able to the good news of having social media is that i was able to put out a couple of clips that discussed my experience with the protest because what happened was when the protest began the iranian community around the world inside and outside was on board 24 7. yeah and as you said it took some pushing from the community for the bigger western community to start paying attention and it is it's this struggle for democracy and and, and a lot of times i tell americans i say iran is a cautionary tale of what could happen in america if we don't always fight for our democracy you know you. um because because right away i mean if you look at it the strategy is so this religious leadership comes into iran and right away they start implementing all of their morals on the rest of the country sound familiar mm-hmm. religious right right and then That's well it. and then americans go well they wouldn't take our rights away they already have they took away a woman's right to choose whether you're Ooh. pro or anti-abortion doesn't matter they've taken a woman's right to choose a way. And in the decision, Clarence Thomas says, we're probably going to look at gay marriage next. So that's the same playbook. The Iran, uh, the theocracy, the Islamic Republic, they came in right away. They started taking women's rights away. They started taking LGBTQ rights away. They started going after religious minorities. And that's That's how it plays out, you know, And, and, and we see that they've also lined it up in America. They've lined it up in certain states and places to have a minority run a majority. I mean, in the country, that's how it goes, right? You're right. And You're so, right. We, you know, it's right there in front of us, and we need to be awake
1: and aware and active. It's so how fundamentalists of every society interact. Our fundamentalist Christians have more in common with Iranian fundamentalist Muslims than they do with sane, moderate Christians. It, regardless of the faith, the fundamental it's always women. Second class, sex, bad, unless it's for procreation, gay, bad, violence, okay, if my side does it, because God likes us more. And it's, it's, they're all the same religion at the end of the day. Absolutely. And it's,
2: you know, and it's really heartbreaking to see with Iran, because the country and the people are, some of the kindest and it's just like they have so much potential i see a lot of you know there's constant brain drains and iran's one of the countries but you look at like places like syria you look at afghanistan a lot of these places because the system is so corrupted and so oppressive the brains want to leave and they come to places like the us and canada and europe and they go and they prosper and they work in technology or in medicine or whatever and that country ends up suffering because of it. I mean it always breaks my heart when I am in the Middle East. I, I I perform in, you know, Dubai and Doha and Kuwait, all over the Middle East, but especially when I'm in Dubai. Dubai is this city that is has has really done an amazing job of becoming a, a pro, making progress just in terms of the city itself. Like it feels to me like it's like the Singapore, of the Middle East. It's, you know, buildings and business and different people from different backgrounds. And and yet 40 years ago it was nothing. Yeah. And it's a you know, the UAE is a much smaller country than Iran. And you sit there and you, you right. go, gosh, these guys are able to make so much progress. And you have the country right next to them, Iran. And they are still stuck in the Stone Ages because of The extremism of this theocracy, I mean, Iran, don't get me wrong, has clearly they have a lot of smarts and they have a lot of, uh, um, you know, they they do have a lot of wealth. They have a lot happening. But the oppression that these poor young people have to feel, the fact that, John, when when the protests happened, uh, and again, just to clarify, it it started because this young woman was walking in the streets and her hair was out of her hijab a little Mm -hmm. bit. I happened to be in Europe doing shows at the time. And I was in Germany and I was walking in some big square and I saw these two girls probably in their early twenties were just walking past me and they seemed to be having a good time and just whatever laughing and just walked past me. And I, and I just looked at them and I was like, geez, no, one's bothering them. No, one's asking them why they're dressed the way they're dressed. No, one's bothering them. They're having a good time. They're just walking down the street. They might have been smoking. They were, I don't know what they were. I just, I just remember they were like, just they were very free and doing their thing. Didn't have to think, didn't have to think twice about it. Yeah. And yet these young women in Iran or young men in Iran or just people in general, you can't be like, you could be on the streets of Iran with your girlfriend holding their hands and this morality police could stop you and go, what's going on, what's the relationship? It's just,
1: it's just unbelievable. And Maz, my understanding is that about 60% Of the population of modern Iran is under the age of 50, which tells me in our lifetimes there's gonna be a lot of change.
2: Yeah, I agree. You know, I think one of the biggest things that's, I I say, one of the, you know, biggest weapons that's gonna change some of these um, autocratic countries is social media, it's the internet. And the reason is there used to be a time when you could keep your people in the dark and just say don't ask questions this is how we run it you know shut up but now people in these countries are seeing how everybody else lives and they want to live like that so i myself on instagram i have yeah i have like hundreds of thousands of followers from iran on instagram and so they're seeing me they're seeing others and they're saying gosh i want to live like that and so that's it you're absolutely right i think in this lifetime those changes will have to happen. I feel that no matter what we say and do, things are becoming more and more progressive. You know that, like the younger no generation what. comes through. No matter what. What we just I mean, saw T- in Tennessee- TV,
1: TV took down the Berlin Wall. It was television that brought down the curtain. That's it.
2: Yeah. That's it. And and you see it and you see, you know, like I was saying, the thing that just happened in Tennessee where they ousted those um, two members mm-hmm. of the Tennessee House and now they one of them has been- You know put back in um you see that you know there was a time when maybe the information wasn't flowing as quickly and they might have gotten away with it um and now we see the uproar and the protests you know so i do feel that 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 the future is going to be more and more progressive and that's part of why there's such a pushback from the far right i think that they're nervous about losing that power but i don't see it as losing
1: power i see it as the sharing power but they see that as losing power these are the people who saw somehow if you let gay people marry who they love in a free society that's going to take something away from me you know insecure men are terrified of other people getting ahead in the world and 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 maz before i i I let you go I, i have to ask you about one more thing right before uh, the pandemic, you and I did a show together in Beverly Hills. Uh, that was a reading of the Mueller report, uh, with Larry David and, and Deborah Messing and a gazillion celebs. And it was really, really fun, really, really important. And I was really impressed and pleased to see you doing material about January 6th in your act and, and folding it in, in such a way that no one was offended. No one got upset by it. And you just brought out the net. I mean, you have, you have Cassidy Hutchinson material in your new special, <laughs> I'm curious. Yeah, what was you know, did j- you want to include it? I, I love that you, by the way, use the T word for terrorism for what we saw that day.
2: Yeah, because I I right away when I started seeing that, I mean, I as an any time I get into any argument with anyone who's trying to defend Trump or bring back Trump or say, you know, I just had somebody say, oh, you know, yeah, he wasn't he wasn't perfect, but I kind of miss him. I go, I don't miss him at all and i just go he tried to overthrow democracy i go are you are you telling me i asked the guy i said are you telling me that the election was stolen you believe it was stolen and the guy goes no i go well then there's no argument you lose the argument yeah. you can't go anywhere after that that crew of people the both the organizers and the people i almost feel sorry for the people who were there that day falling prey to the orchestrators of January 6th, which was Trump and company. And those guys all are, you know, the guy sitting in his you know, home somewhere and gets this thing, you better show up. You better go, we gotta go, I mean, they lost their minds. And so as someone who's, again, from my background, I go, I'm gonna call you guys out on it. You guys weren't patriots, you were terrorists. And the fact is, if they were a bunch of brown people storming the Capitol that day, your opinions would have been very different You would have wanted the cops Mm -hmm. to show up i mean trump pretty much would say things like that like just knock them out get them you know he says stuff like that so it just depends on the color of the skin of the person and how you're going to deal with it and now you got your marjorie taylor greens and others going oh these guys are being mistreated in prison i mean it's just all such a weird reality like can't we all agree that anybody of any background attacking what's supposed to be the most sacred ground of our country is a criminal that's just that's criminal like the fact that they're still we the can't fact even that agree that it attacks
1: an attack we were calling them tourists yeah yeah.
2: Attack. yeah it was a simple tourist visit i mean <laughs> the fact that he's still out in my opinion like the fact that he's not in jail like I, I i kind of compare it to some of these more totalitarian states and i go geez you know when there was an attempted coup in turkey like everybody involved just got thrown in jail like there wasn't even any i mean i'm not saying that's good or bad i'm just saying that you would think the people who orchestrated this thing by now would be doing time for it. Um, exactly. So yeah, I try to
1: I try to bring bring that to the forefront in the special with some levity. And it's a beautiful special, Maz. Honestly, it was so great to see it. I love the way you bring the personal and the political and the spiritual all together, and always keep it funny. And I don't know how you do this. This is a an edgy wholesome show it is edgy and yet it is still for all ages it's called the birds of the bees it is on youtube right now where can we see you live and how can we get tickets
2: i will be touring all over the country i'll be in arizona i'll be in wisconsin i'll be in denver san jose sacramento raleigh uh denver so everyone just goes to mazjobrani.com that's m-a-z-j-o-b-r-a-n-i.com and come out. Even if you see the Birds and the Beast special, I always do crowd work. I always have some new material. So I I promise you a good time. Maz, it is always great
1: to see you. I love the special. Thank you so much for joining us on SiriusXM. Thank you for having me, John. Appreciate you.